Welcome to the Scaling New Heights podcast, a program for accountants and bookkeepers who seek to scale new heights in their practices and guide their clients to scale new heights in their businesses. My name is Joe Woodard, and I am joined today by Kim Perrell. Now, Kim is an entrepreneur. She's a best-selling author. She's a tech CEO and an angel investor. She's also a main stage presenter at Scaling New Heights. Kim started her first company from her kitchen table and then went through a lot to build out her career. After being laid off, she went from going broke to becoming a multi-millionaire, and she did it all by the time she was 30. Her last company that she built and sold sold for $235 million. Now, Kim's the author of the best-selling book, The Execution Factor, the one skill that drives success. And that's designed to help others to achieve the kind of success that she has been able to achieve in her own career. And we're here today to talk about the major takeaways from that book. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Joe. I'm excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you, and I'm very excited about you joining us this fall, fall of 2020, for the upcoming Scaling New Heights Conference as well. Um, I read your book, as I said in the opening matter, and loved it, and that was the reason I wanted you to come speak at the show. There's so much in your book that's relevant to our audience of small business advisors. In the book, you detail five traits that will result in effective and consistent execution. And this would be for the folks listening to this podcast and also for their clients. So as you're listening, folks, listen from both angles, both points of view. How can you apply these principles? How can you coach your clients to apply them? But if it's okay with you, I'd just like to walk through the five traits from your book. Is that okay? Perfect. All right. So at Woodard, we're big believers in vision. We actually break it down to vision, mission, and purpose. And we say vision is like a compass that guides your journey. Mission is your daily measurable repeat and improve and repeat and improve cycle um, that's somewhat malleable. And then we have this thing called purpose that drives every single decision that you make in your business. So, and our listeners have heard me say that over and over and over again. But when I read through your book, uh, you gave you gave some fresh perspectives on vision that I found inspirational. So what would you say uh, around this vision trait? That's your trait number one. Uh, what, what would you say to small business advisors that need to develop this in their practices or to coach their clients to have more vision? Yeah, I think when I when I think about vision, I think about it as a North Star. So every day that is, you know, my overarching vision of what I want to accomplish. It could be many milestones on the way to that big vision, but it's that North Star of what I want, you know, what I'm trying to achieve and what every business owner or advisor is trying to achieve as well. Right. And I think keeping that top of mind and making sure it's crystal clear. So as as specific as you could possibly make it, makes a huge difference. And I'll give you an example of something I did when, um, you know, when I sold my last company, you know, it was really about putting it down on paper, putting it somewhere where I could see it. So I wrote down my vision, which was to sell my company by a certain date for a certain amount. So really specific. And I put it on my bathroom mirror on a post-it note so I could see it every single day. And it was that consistency 
like even when all of the world's distractions came in and out of my day that would keep me aligned to that overarching vision. So it was unwavering. And as many, uh, you know, people know deals always take turns and hit challenges and roadblocks, but that vision just kept pushing me through. It was that North star that kept me, you know, really pushing to complete the transaction, which, which is hard. And I mean, I don't want, you know, it was, it's always so difficult. So just having that crystal clear picture. And I've done that, you know, right now I have something on my bathroom mirror as well. So I'm really clear about like what I'm trying to accomplish, whether that be to get two new clients, increase, um, you know, increase my portfolio, whatever my current vision is, it's really clear. And I, it's very tactical. So I think that's what it's taking it down from the stars and like really putting it, you know, inside in my house. Yeah. As a matter of fact, you described that in the book, you know, the phrase you use is don't just think it, ink it, which, you know, I, I like the way you <laughs> phrase that. It sounds like you literally inked it out onto a, a sticky note. Um, I heard a, a great quote from Andy Stanley, who has a leadership podcast. I recommend everybody go out and check um, and listen to, but in the Andy Stanley leadership podcast, he says, everybody ends up somewhere. Very few people end up somewhere on purpose. And it sounds like you ended up somewhere with that company on purpose because you kept that end game right in front of you all the time. So listeners, don't just think it, ink it. Now, Kim, you described vision trait number one in your book as the loneliest trait. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, as a CEO and entrepreneur and a, you know, just a business individual, it's, it's lonely. I mean, people will look at your vision. They might tell you why it's not going to work, why it can't work. It, they don't understand. I, you know, when I started my first internet company before, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, people laughed at me and they thought you're going to go start a company and do advertising online. I mean, granted, this was way back in early 2000, but right after the dot-com bubble burst there, you know, and they said, you should actually get a real job. And I was just, I, I knew in my heart, like there was a large opportunity, no matter what anyone else says. So it's lonely and you just have to believe more in your own vision and your own um, success than anyone else doubt in you, because there will be a lot of doubt. Right. And I think it's just making sure that your belief in your own vision it, it keeps you company, I guess you would say, right? Because it, yeah. it, it is lonely. It is lonely. But, you know, I like your North Star because if I'm walking through the wilderness all by myself and I have no other guidance, then at least there's a point I can look to and know that I can measure my success against my goal. And I might be alone and I might not have anybody cheering me along. But in a lot of ways, that North Star, or I call it a compass, that, uh, that compass is cheering me along. It's reassuring me that I am on the right path at the right pace and my direction is, is, is set. So, uh, so passion, so your vision can be your friend, right? But trait number two is passion. <laughs> yeah. Trait number two is passion. How does passion uh, follow vision? I mean, in other words, are these sequential and how does it relate to execution? Yeah, so once you have your vision, that's that clear North Star for you it's going to take a lot of passion. And I, you know, I look at passion differently than I think a lot of other people do. And passion is the Latin root word for pain or suffering. And the reality is in order to achieve that vision, it's going to take a lot of hard work and you're going to need, I mean, what are you willing to suffer for or give up in order to attain it? Whether that's late nights, early mornings, 
I mean, there is something you will have to give up in order to achieve great things. And it's willing to suffer to achieve them. And so I think it's really understanding, you know, what am I truly passionate about? Because if you're truly passionate, it actually doesn't feel like work. And if it's purposeful for what you truly believe in your heart, it, it, it really doesn't, it feels like a passion. And although it's, you know, it is a passion to pursue a vision, it really truly is something that just moves you to do what other people won't. And I think so, that's- So can difference. we drive this home in your vision? You, your vision was a begin with the end in mind goal. It was a, a transactional based goal. It was way out there in the future. It was a long, lonely journey between you and that vision. Um, what, what was your passion with that company that you sold? What kept you stepping along the way? Yeah, I think for me, the passion for me was honestly my employees. I had a very large company I was running and strategically it was a great um, partner for us. And we, you know, and to, you know, from a digital perspective, which the company I was running, it needed a lot more capital and in order to be able to continue to grow, it was a great partner that had that capital that they could continue to invest. So I, it was really people driven. Like my passion is people. I love to people see people succeed, and that partnership would give the people the opportunity to continue to grow and innovate within a digital world. So it was. And I'm yeah, so glad me, you answered about, that way because I'm a big believer yeah. in the fact that passion is inspired most from from other people's outcomes. And, and we talk yeah. about that a lot. We, we think that, a, that a, a, a vision, a mission, and a purpose should be intensely client-focused. And in your case, this was intensely focused on the company that you had invested in, the people you were empowering, and, and making their lives better. And um, you, do, you actually refer to the word love there, you know, what we do for love. And what I was reading between the lines is there in a professional sense, you, you loved those people. And you, you, you gave, it was a giving love, right? And you wanted to... to to see them be successful. In that, in that uh, trait number two, uh, when you're talking about passion, y you challenge your readers to never completely submit to the dark side. I mean, what do you mean by the dark side? And what do you mean by never completely submit? Yeah, I think passion will only take you so far. You have to also know, you know, because you're willing to sacrifice, but there is a point. I mean, you should never, Go, I would never sacrifice my family, my friendships, like what's most important, my, my true values, right? So you have to know what you have to be willing to suffer, but to a point where, you know, as a small business owner, you have to also know when to throw in the towel, when to give up, when it's not going to work because you're at the expense of something that's truly valued to you, you shouldn't, right? Like in my personal opinion, I just don't, I wouldn't ever um, jeopardize my family or my friendships. So it's like, it's, all, it, it's like a, it, there's a, there's a threshold, a go, no go threshold where you're just not <laughs> going to cross that line. And, do you, and, and I guess you would recommend setting that out a little ahead because when you're in the middle of that and, and you're in the heart of the passion and your vision is carrying you and you're, you're not objective that, that sort of go, no go boundary. And you described one of them, protect your family uh, is, is a way of, of inserting objectivity in, into the equation. You know, you, you were very vulnerable in the book in describing some of the challenges that your father went through. He sounded like he was an extremely visionary and passionate person. Um, but is that sort of the lesson that drove this dark side? And can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I think it is. And, and watching my parents, both entrepreneurs growing up and having many, you know, <laughs> many 
um, many times that we were very close to bankruptcy, my father specifically in his entrepreneurial endeavors, it just wasn't, you know, looking back, I don't think personally it was worth it. Like I don't, you know, I tell people when they're starting as an entrepreneur, don't quit your day job because you don't want to risk your current livelihood or how you're supporting your family in order to chase a dream that may or may not come, that may or may not happen. So you, you have to be, I think, fiscally responsible to ensure that you can pursue your passion, but also maintain the balance of what's most important to you. Because hmm. yeah, my ridiculous. father would, <laughs> you know, he'd throw everything at it. Well, and, and, and some of the ideas he had were amazing. Had he fulfilled that vision, like overhauling health care for, for seniors and, and people in hospice. And I mean, there were great, great ideas. But I think that actually is your point, right? A, a, an idea can be great, but it has to be executable. Uh, that's the name of the right. book. Um, so, exactly. so trait number three, uh, speaking of executable, right? You've got vision, <laughs> trait number one. You've got passion, trait number two. With trait number three, you describe that as action. So how do we bridge the gap then between vision and passion and create a plan that is executable and works? Right. And I think, you know, there's this great phrase that is you wouldn't go to a forest without a map. How do you go into achieving your vision without a plan? So it's really about setting that plan and acting and taking that first step because a lot of people I know just get stuck, right? It's either they made this huge vision, which is so overwhelming that you don't even, you don't even know where to start, right? So how do you take that first step? It doesn't have to be the, you know, it's just the first one. And I think that's really hard for people to do. It's all, it's easier to dream, right? It's very hard to do. And that's why when writing the book and looking at my experience with so many companies, everyone has a great idea, but when it actually comes to executing, it's really hard. Yeah, it is. I love the plan idea, right? Because because maybe I'm not ready to do yet. There's a there's a, the fear factor in doing, but I can always plan, and, and that's exactly it stays a little safe and it stays a little academic, so that I don't start executing until I feel like I've got um, a footing, and I've got where I need to step next and next, and that mitigates that mitigates risk, right? And, and in the uh, book, you address procrastination, which is a favored topic of mine. And, and I'm fond of saying that, that people equate procrastination with inaction. And I think that's part of the problem. Procrastination is not inaction. It's the wrong actions. Um, we procrastinate the most important things by doing the things that are predictable and easy and fun. And we're, then we're busy at the end of the day. And in terms of task count, we might knock out 50 tasks, but did we do the one that really mattered? And your, your trait three sounds like it's prioritizing those actions that may not be as predictable, maybe not even as fun on the front side. As a matter of fact, you, you say things like fear. <laughs> you, you bring up that a lot in that chapter, uh, in that section. But with the plan we can prioritize them and have the courage to push through them. Right. And, and to your point, busyness is not the same as progress. So, and people mistake that all the time. You could give me a day, you've done a lot, but have you done anything specifically to achieve that vision? And, you know, it's really interesting at night, I write down every night, just the top three things I need to achieve the next day to get one step closer to the vision, whether it's be making a phone call to your point that you're afraid to make for whatever reason, whether it be, it could be anything, but just really prioritizing all, you know, there's a 
hundred things I need to do. I've got four kids. I've got a new puppy. But what what actually is most important for me to do? And I make that a priority to do first thing. Yes. Before well, love you know, that prioritization love for sure. Yeah. So you describe action as taking the first step and then the next one, right? So it's like mm -hmm. just just think about the next two steps. But right. I heard I'll you loud and clear. Oh yeah, if not, <laughs> you'll look overwhelmed. But I, but I want the listeners to hear you loud and clear because I heard you loud and clear. That doesn't mean the absence of a plan. You're not feeling your way through two steps at a time. You're executing on yeah. the plan a couple steps at a time. And there's a lot here that I don't know if you were influenced at all, at all by Stephen Covey, but I'm hearing, and I, I think there's an undercurrent of truth like that we all tap into like a well, and that's why there's so many common denominators. But I'm hearing a lot of his seven habits uh, echoed in this where you're, you have the first three where you are whole and independent. And then the next three is as a whole and independent person, you can be interdependent. And here we've got a lot of my independence. Um, I, I'm a vision person. I'm a passion person. I'm an actionable person. I'm healthy. I'm whole, right? But part of being healthy and whole is being pervasive. You call it resilience. That's your trait number four. Talk to us a little bit about the important role of resilience in execution. Yeah. I, based on my own experience in all the companies I've run or you know, invested in, advised, something always goes wrong. I mean, I guarantee it. I will, I will, it will, something will always go wrong. What you thought was your plan is not going to work out. Some, and so developing a muscle of resilience. So start training for setbacks all the time. And what that looks like in a day to day, you know, someone I know had come and said, I, I need to get more sales, but I'm really nervous. I don't like to sell myself. Okay. No, you know, that's a trait that, you know, people probably have in their DNA, but you can learn it. And, but the only way to learn resilience and because they're, they're afraid. They're afraid that someone's going to say no, that someone's going to reject them. That's the reality. Like you should think of rejection as your best friend. So how do you use that to your advantage and put yourself in the face of rejection all the time? So it actually becomes, you know, it normalizes the, you know, it normalizes rejection and it builds resilience for yourself. I, I think, you know, it's interesting having looked back on my own career, you become numb to a lot of things because you're always in the face of something you know, a fire or something happening, right? And I'm sure everyone, you know, a lot of people can empathize with that. There's always something going wrong. And if you just assume that's going to happen, it's now part of my day. You, you can react, I think, in a much calmer, um, a calmer way that the outcome will be better. There's an irony in that, like, like a, a healthy pessimism leads to optimism. Right. <laughs> but yes. but there, there's some truth to it. Right. Setting a realist. Maybe maybe it's realism breeds optimism would be the better way to phrase it, because pessimism would be always just expecting the bad thing to happen. But realism says a bad thing's going to happen. Something isn't going to go as planned. And that realism, once achieved on the front side, it presumed on the front side, helps you to sustain optimism. I love what you said about learning resilience. I, I think there's a myth out there that that resilience is something you either have or you don't. It's a genetic or cultural thing that you achieved in, in childhood or from birth. And if you don't have it, you're just handicapped for the rest of your life in this area. Seems you disagree. I do disagree. I think you can, if you have to put yourself in, in places outside your comfort zone, which you're going to need resilience for, right? And the more you put yourself in the face of those type of um, 
those type of situations, the more you'll build that muscle. I truly believe resilience, you know, resilience is a muscle and, and you got to train for it, right? Just like as you would train for everything, but it's uncomfortable. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, there's calls I don't want to make. There's, you know, there's things I want to do, but it's pushing past that fear and doing it anyway. And knowing that you can try, fail, and then try again, right? Like, okay, that's, and, and knowing that's okay. And I saw, I guess growing up, I saw my dad fail so many times it became almost, you know, it wasn't, it was okay. It was part of being an entrepreneur. It's part of being in business. Things weren't going to always go right. Yep. He definitely had the resiliency trait down tight. Uh, he just needed those other three, it sounds like, with, you know, all respect. But, uh, but that, that gave you the learning, right? He gave you it that did. experience that gave the world this book. So he achieved something wonderful there. Um, so let, let's, uh, let, let's kind of round it off now. You've got a fifth key trait that is, uh, that is part of your execution strategy. So for the listeners who are probably driving along in their car, someplace where they can't write this down right now, uh, the first trait was vision, which you describe as a North Star. Trait two is passion, which you said that's what you're willing to sacrifice and suffer for. Uh, trait three mm-hmm. is action, which is about having a plan around every step, but then taking those a couple steps at a time so you don't get overwhelmed. Resili- res- resilience, because things are going to go not as planned, and you need to prepare for that. Be realistic. Let that realism breed optimism. You said it's a muscle. The fifth trait takes an interesting turn, relationships. Um, what, how does that factor in and how is it the culmination of the first four? Yeah, lo- looking back on my own career, I truly believe no one is successful alone. And you need to surround yourself with supportive, inspiring and healthy relationships to be successful. And that's been a key trait of my personal success because I've been so fortunate to have so many people want to support and help me along my journey and and really why I want you know my why I wrote the book I want to give back that those learnings and that advice that I was given and that help but having people in your corner makes a huge difference especially when you're let's you know you have challenges right like have to lean on that believe in you that support you even when you, you know, from my own, you know, my own personal experience when I'm broke and bankrupt and, you know, no one thinks it's going to work out, you know, someone has to be in your corner and having those relationships really make a huge difference in, in life and business. I I think that's, you know, it actually is, it's a red thread through probably so many different aspects of, of um, success. Well, and, and, and for our audience, I think that it's multifaceted because they're so used to being the mentor and being the bulwark for their clients. A lot of times that's too back office and not enough owner's office, you know, and that's what we're challenging people to do is, is to couple service work with knowledge work and ultimately evolve that into relationship work. Our audience has heard me say that many, many times, but your challenge here is well-placed. And I want everybody listening to hear you can't spend all of your time being the giver in the support equation. You must have people in your life, like Kim just said, who give to you. And I think that a, that a healthy life is someone where you have at least one mentor or one encourager, and you have one or more people that are the encourage ease or the mentor ease. If you don't have both relationships in your life, you're going to have a 
deficit somewhere that it sounds like, Kim, you're saying is going to hurt your consistent and productive execution. Yeah, I 100% I, I agree. I have some incredible mentors through the years, and there's different mentors at different times, and I think that's really important. But I'm very proactive on seeking out people that have been there, have done that. So who can help you, you know, take that next step, like that next leap? And who's been there? Who's done that? I'm, I'm 100% believe like great mentors. And I've had two with my, you know, obviously my parents are both great mentors, but I've had incredible mentors even today that help me achieve what my next vision is, right? Because they've done that. They've been there. And they actually, from based on my experience, they want to help. Yeah. Right. And I don't think you need a lot. Right. But to your point, you need someone that you can call that will be able to be your, you know, your champion. And I, and I love the way you say that it could be different mentors for different seasons of your life and different situations that you're in. I, I once had somebody tell me there are two kinds of meaningful life impacting relationships. There are the people in your life who are like scaffolding you, the, those relationships are erected for a temporary purpose to do construction in a particular area of your life. And then there are the people who are the studs and the arches and the building blocks of the building that are part of your life or have a, uh, uh, an impact on the whole of your life beyond the situation that you're, that you're going through. And I'm hearing you say that those scaffolding relationships are malleable, they're situational, and it's extremely important that we seek them out and we develop them, or it may be that we, we're not going to have the resilience we need or that our vision's gonna get lost or maybe our passion's going to get thwarted and these other traits, they're just not sustainable. Right, I, I really believe in relationships and that trust is foundation for all success. So finding those individuals and, and also individuals that you, that inspire you, right? That, that you want to be left, right? How do you find someone that's been in your shoes that I think those are the best mentors that you could possibly find is someone that can give you advice based on their own experience. And how do you find, you know, that, those are the best you know, from, our, from how to continue to grow your business. Those are great because they'll give you honest feedback. They'll, they say, I've been there. I've done that. This is what I would do. And that's, I mean, you can't ask for a better, um, a better relationship. I could not agree more. And, and just keep in mind too, folks, that yes, seeking those out in your own life, but remember that everything Kim just described is for you a relationship work opportunity. Don't think for one second that the business owners leading these small businesses that you service have it all together. You probably know they don't, but even if they seem to, that just could be the business owner's type A personality covering it up. They are just as scared as anybody else they have to have their journey protected just as much as anybody else. They need to, to read this book and they need to have passion and vision and resiliency just like anybody else. And you are perfectly positioned to play that relationship role that Kim just described. Mm -hmm. And that's transformational for your clients. And in your case, because of your profession, it's also billable. It's part of your model for your practice. So, Take that challenge. That is that so Kim true. Yes, it is. Yeah, it I is. love that. That is so true. As a CEO and many CEOs, like I'm referring people all the time to, they, you know, we need help, right? Like small business owners, we need help. We need someone to advise us. We need someone to help us on this journey. And anyone, you know, based on my own experience, I, I would love if someone 
asked me how, you know, or try helped advise me. That is the, that is amazing for a business owner because it is lonely on the top, right? And you can't talk to your employees. So you have to talk to someone that you trust. And that you trust is objective and, and <laughs> exactly. outside, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, if, and if you're listening here, you're like, that's great, Joe. I've heard all this before, but I just don't know how to get there. I would encourage you to read, read Kim's book. It, it's intensely practical when it comes to laying out this pathway. But I would also uh, echo back one more time. Maybe it's a great way to end this conversation that there's a plan and then there's a couple steps at a time. You do not need to solve the whole riddle of advisory relationship work in a single sitting. Formulate a plan, step it a couple steps at a time, overcome the challenges with resiliency, and bring the people into your life in a relationship that can coach you through adopting the model. Your, your book is actually a roadmap for what we call the rise of the advisor. And that's so appropriate, Kim, because that's the conference theme when you're gonna come join us in September. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks so much. And thank you for tuning in to today's podcast and our conversation with Kim Perrell. For more information about today's episode, to explore other episodes in this podcast series, or to learn more about our annual conference, visit woodard.com. That's W-O-O-D-A-R-D.com. As always, we encourage you to stay tuned, stay connected, never stop learning, and scale new heights.